Hi and welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. I'm Ren Levy. Two months ago, Jeff Bezos was hacked when the crown prince of Saudi Arabia sent him a malware-laced WhatsApp message. And while reading this and pressing a specific link that was attached or video that was attached to this, uh, to this WhatsApp message, uh, a hidden process or like an, a code execution has been done in this device which installed a remote Trojan uh, or remote agent uh, on Bezos' uh, iPhone X. This is Roy Ackerman, VP of Product Incubation at CyberReason. Now, since then, the report mentions that a lot of uh, vast amount of megabytes and gigabytes like poured out of this device, and they didn't conclude what exactly was collected, but it was a lot of data, uh, personal data of Bezos, including messages and pictures that was shared with his lover. You probably heard of the Bezos hack. It's a great story. One of the world's most powerful leaders hacking one of the world's most powerful men. To those of us in cybersecurity, the story rang differently. An iPhone X, typically thought of as one of the world's most secure devices, and WhatsApp, one of the world's most popular mainstream apps, were both compromised. Mobile is no longer on the fringe of cybersecurity. M- mobile hacking tools are now a basic tool, preliminary and basic tool in every uh, Western Intel organization that, that we have there. Mobile considered as the next generation endpoint, mobile considered as a great replacement for, you know, just like uh, installing uh, a hidden mic on apartments. Too little of the discourse around cybersecurity takes mobile threats into account. And we, here at Malicious Life, are part of the problem. We did about 60 episodes before getting to mobile malware in our episode on spyware. That was too long a wait. So, to make up for lost time, we're dedicating three episodes to one case study in the complexity, popularity and dangerousness of mobile malware. So listen on, it's in your interest. Because, let's face it, if the world's richest man can be hacked with a simple text message, so can you. Who knows, maybe it's already happened. My name is Patrick Wardle. I am a principal security researcher at Jamf and also the creator of the Mac security website and tool suite, Objective-C. Patrick Wardle is the guide for our show today. He's a nice guy, probably in small part because he gets to live in sunny Hawaii. That's far away from where the rubber hits the road in international cyber espionage. Late last year, though, he was approached by the New York Times. They needed his help with an investigation. Our senior producer, Nate Nelson, asked him about it. Now, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but why did the New York Times call on you instead of anyone else in the security world? Ah, That's an excellent question. Uh, I have a long history focusing exclusively on Apple security, uh, predominantly Mac, but also iOS. Uh, So I spent a lot of time analyzing uh, iOS applications. I've reported vulnerabilities to Apple 
in iOS that have received uh, CDEs. On the Mac side, I've done a lot of Mac malware analysis, looked at nation-state tools. And then I think also the fact that I used to work for the National Intelli- National Security Agency, pardon, the NSA, um, might also have played into uh, the decision. Uh, finally, I've done some joint research before uh, with the New York Times looking at um, various cyber espionage o- operations. So there was kind of a, an existing relationship already there. The story that led to Patrick's investigation began when an official in U.S. intelligence tipped off the New York Times to a peculiar app. The app was called TuTalk. TuTalk was very popular. Only a few months after release, it had over 5 million downloads from the Google Play Store. In Apple's App Store, it was the number four messaging app worldwide, just behind WhatsApp at number three. So that was the interesting thing because TuTalk really came out of, of nowhere uh, in the sense that, you know, I would say about a year ago, um, you know, it basically wasn't even in existence. Looking at the app itself, it's not so obvious what made TuTalk so popular. It was just a messaging app with no features you couldn't find in other apps. Its interface was nearly identical to WhatsApp's. So what was it that made TuTalk so popular so quickly? The answer? Nothing good. The app's distinguishing feature was the audience it reached, citizens of the United Arab Emirates. The reason it became so popular in the UAE, and this is part of the genius of the whole operation, is that in the UAE, the government has banned the majority of messaging applications, for example, Skype, WhatsApp. So it's very difficult for citizens within the UAE to actually communicate among themselves and then also communicate with their friends, families, relatives outside. So TuTalk was the exception, surprise, surprise, in the sense that it was fully functional within the UAE. So almost overnight, it gained this massive popularity. Uh, I believe it became the number one messaging social media app within the UAE. The overwhelming majority of TuTalk's customer base originated from the UAE. Many of its customers outside of the UAE had family in the country whom they could now finally speak to without any barriers in their way for the first time in really ever. In that sense... TuTalk was a massive humanitarian achievement. Over a few months, which is very surprising. Um, and, and this was solely because the fact that it worked within uh, DOE, where the majority of other messaging applications um, did not. We also saw instances where the media in that country, in that region, you know, would uh, review this application or recommend this application. Uh, so there was a lot of media coverage as well. So that media coverage coupled with the fact that it provided the citizens with a way to communicate both within the country and externally uh, made it the you know, number one social networking application uh, in the region, in the UAE. Now, had TuTalk remained exclusively an Emirati phenomena, we may not have heard so much about it so soon. But what happened instead is a story common to the startup world. Its quick initial rise in popularity drew attention. Enough people in or related to people in the UAE downloaded it to where it became one of the world's most popular messaging apps, at which point individuals with no connection whatsoever to the country began downloading it themselves just to see what the hype was about. 
Soon, it was one of the fastest growing apps in the United States. So I think this is, again, the main reason why the American intelligence individual came forward to the New York Times to kind of provide this information. Uh, my guess, and again, this is just a hypothetical uh, guess, is that as Tutalk became so popular, uh, Americans started using this application, for example, to communicate with their friends and relatives, perhaps in the UAE. And that's when, you know, from American intelligence point of view, a line perhaps had been crossed that said, okay, look, if... This is just being used internal to UAE. Ah, it doesn't really impact American national security interests. But okay, now we have this application that now the fact that Americans are basically getting uh, involved in this and starting to utilize this app, we need to step in and make sure that uh, this information is, is now public. At this point, dear listeners, it might not surprise you to learn that this highly successful app came with a catch. Tutalk wasn't just a popular messaging service, it was a little too popular, a little too close to powerful people who don't have a good track record on free speech and independent media. It was a free and open communication app in a country where Skype and WhatsApp are banned for being free and open communications apps. It was being promoted in the state-run news media. Tutalk was clearly not just any startup. Patrick's job then was simple, to break into the app and figure out what was really going on. Actually, it's rather difficult to analyze applications or any part of iOS. And this is kind of interesting. Uh, iOS is an incredibly secure device, but kind of a negative aspect of this, and this is kind of paradoxical, is this actually makes the device basically a black box. In a way, you don't really know what's going on in your iPhone. So say you want to analyze an application. Well, apps obviously come from the iOS app store, um, but when you download them, they are encrypted, which means you can't just pull them onto, for example, um, a PC or Mac and then look at the binary code because it's all encrypted. So what you actually have to do is you have to jailbreak your iPhone using an exploit or a vulnerability, and then you can install debugging tools and analysis tools. So again, this is rather problematic from a security point of view because this means, say the New York Times comes to you and says, hey, there's this application that we want you to analyze, to look at the bones, to analyze its internals, look at its binary code. In order to view the code behind Tutalk, Patrick had to jailbreak his phone. Luckily, there was a very popular jailbreak or vulnerability called Check Rain, which had recently been released by the jailbreak community. Um, and that allowed me to jailbreak an older version of uh, uh, an iPhone I had, an older iPhone running uh, iOS, uh, I believe it was 13 at the time, or perhaps 12. Um, and from that, with this jailbroken device, I was then able to dump the uh, now decrypted code, and that allowed me to analyze the device, uh, rather the application. Um, in conjunction, I was then also able to install analysis tools on the now jailbroken iOS device. So I could, for example, watch what files the application accessed, what network traffic it generated, etc., etc. Now, listeners, I have a theory. It's about what we mentioned before, why Patrick was called upon by the New York Times investigative team. I think this is the real reason why Patrick was involved in the case. It wasn't just that he's an expert in iOS security. 
The two-talk investigation was wading into legally dubious territory. This was a dirty job. In fact, the job was so messy that responsibility had to be passed down twice over. The New York Times only got the scoop because even more powerful people couldn't handle the story themselves. You know, it's a really interesting way that the intelligence community can use the press in a very positive way because, you know, it's unlikely that the intelligence community can go directly, for example, to Apple or to Google and say, hey, you need to remove this application. Um, there's probably some legal issues there. Whereas if they just leak something to the press and then the press can basically run with it, have someone like me look at the application or do their own investigation. It, it's then the New York Times that's uncovering this, this, uh, this operation. And then Google and Apple are more likely to then you know, take that seriously or take steps uh, to, to, to mitigate that. Patrick was a hired gun, the guy you hire in a movie to get the job done, even if it requires some rules to be broken. It's funny, actually, because Patrick wouldn't make for a great movie hitman. He's a super nice guy. What are you looking for before you even find anything? Yeah, that's another excellent question. And that really depends on the ultimate goal of what I'm analyzing. So say I'm analyzing a piece of malware. What I want to know for that piece of malware is how it got on the system, how it persists, how it installs itself, uh, what's its payload, right? What's it interested in? And then perhaps what servers or data it's connecting to and exfiltrating. In the context of an application that may be spying on users, I just want to kind of gain a comprehensive understanding of what the application is doing, perhaps behind the scenes. So, for example, on your iOS device, there's a lot of sensitive information. For example, photos, uh, your geolocation, which obviously updates as you move around. Uh, there's all your contacts, um, you know, other applications that have sensitive information. After cracking his phone open, Patrick could view what was really happening under the veil of Tutok's seemingly ordinary interface. His first most glaring discovery was that Tutok's code really wasn't its own. So the first interesting thing I found about this application, and I kind of talked to this before, it looked like it was packaged or built on top of existing code. Um, specifically, the code or this product that looked like it was built on top of was called Yeecall. That's Y-E-E-C-A-L-L. And there were some strings, some class names, um, some indications, for example, Facebook IDs, that would tie back to Yeecall. Uh, Yeecall turns out to be a uh, company um, that is uh, developed a, a messenger app called Yeecall. Um, and it, as I said, it looked like what Tutok was was simply a repackaging of this application. Ironically, eCall is a lot like Tutok, a messaging and calling app created in an authoritarian country, China, where similar apps like Skype and WhatsApp are banned in order to tamp down free speech and or promote internal companies. Nonetheless, that Tutok was basically just eCall with a new paint coating doesn't necessarily indicate anything shady. In a country like the UAE, where private sector programming talent is scarce, purchasing another company's code may just be good business. What this does indicate is that Tutok wasn't really a normal business. 
Typically, a startup needs some good idea, an innovation which separates the product or service from the rest. That's how you get customers to use your app. It's as if two talks creators were aware from the beginning that they didn't need to create something unique to get customers. So that was kind of interesting and didn't point to anything malicious per se, but again, kind of com- comes along with the narrative that this application wasn't built from the ground up. It really looked like somebody, somebody quickly wanted to have an application that could be used, for example, in the UAE, where all other applications were blocked. Oddly enough, there wasn't anything particularly amiss about the rest of the code. Um, the rest of the code was fairly standard, uh, you know, kind of what you would expect in a messaging application. Uh, so let's say there was no backdoors, no malware, uh, no exploits embedded in the code. And as I mentioned, this was not surprising because if you're going to build an application uh, that is going to be approved for the iOS App Store, uh, Apple does a fairly decent job analyzing those applications to make sure they don't contain Uh, malware, exploits, or backdoors. After the code yielded only one major insight and no malicious activity, the next step was to investigate network traffic. Not how the app worked, but how it was being used. So the network traffic was probably the most interesting. Um, and the first thing I noticed is the information it was sending it to was, again, a server in the UAE, which, again, tied this application to, uh, likely tied this, company, this application to a company um, in the UAE. So if we look at the fingerprint for the SSL certificate, uh, the location, the region was set to uh, Abu Dhabi, um, again, tied to Tutok. You know, kind of, again, tying the application to that region of the world. Other things that the application did that we could see from the network traffic was, first and foremost, it would take the user's entire address book and exfiltrate that to this server. Um, and it would do this multiple times. So, for example, when you would restart the application or it looked after a certain time period, perhaps when you restart the phone, um, it would take your address book Um, and this is your all your contacts, their phone numbers, their email addresses, uh, you know, everything in that address book and send that up to the server. Now, I do want to make the point that legitimate applications, uh, messaging applications do often need access to perhaps your contacts to perhaps find other friends. But it's slightly unusual to see one just kind of sucking up the entire address book um, and uploading that or exfiltrating that uh, again multiple times. Tutok was gathering an unusual amount of customer data that it didn't need. But in an age where companies gather and track our data in ways we can't even know of, this isn't necessarily so far out of the realm of normalcy. If you look at the application with kind of blinders on, meaning you just look at the binary code or just look at the functionality of the application, it really, in a sense, is not doing anything massively wrong. Um, you know, it kind of oversteps, right? You know, it kind of maybe is a little aggressive about gathering the address book, um, perhaps using the location and other such things. But compared to like, a, you know, a piece of malware, it's essentially fully benign. So in the end, maybe Tutok was just another ordinary app after all. Uh, what's that? I, I think I can hear someone listening to our episode on a train near Edinburgh in Scotland. And he sounds pissed. 
Wait, Ron, are you serious? I just listened to 25 minutes of a podcast just to learn that this app I've never heard of before actually wasn't that interesting? Um, but again, I want to caveat that. That is when you're solely looking at the application um, kind of in a vacuum, not at the broader picture of, for example, who's behind said application. This last point is key. A knife in the hand of a chef is a tool, but it's late at night and you're in an alleyway and someone wearing a face mask pulls out a knife. They're not about to chop carrots. According to the New York Times, Tutok was not, in fact, a private enterprise, but a UAE government enterprise. The app wasn't actually built to make money. Its proprietors had ulterior motives. Recall that we named this episode of our podcast How to Convince Someone to Download Spyware. Well, if you wanted to know how, here you go. Here's how. Step 1. Ban an entire market. Lay the groundwork for a monopoly. Step 2. Devise a suitable app for that market. Gather as much data as can be reasonably explained away. Step 3. Mask the origins of your app to make it difficult for investigators to trace its origins. Step 4. Publish the app and market it aggressively with advertising and perhaps a healthy dose of fake social media posts and reviews. So, in a way, you know, you could write a fully legitimate application that's going to pass both Apple and Google's Uh, analysis because it doesn't have any malware, it doesn't have any backdoors, it's not doing anything um, you know suspicious. Uh, it's going to get into the Google Play Store and the iOS App Store where users are trustingly going to download this and recommend it to their friends and then it's going to become incredibly widespread and popular. Then behind the scenes, the developers of the application or the sponsors of the application are going to then be able to see perhaps all this data, all this traffic. So yes, Android and iOS is barely uh, secure and difficult to hack. Uh, but you know, this approach using a legitimate application essentially sidesteps all of that. Because at the end of the day, if you have a legitimate application that's providing you with uh, users' locations, their contact information, uh, perhaps their photos, uh, what they're saying, who they're talking to. Really, what more do you need? So, you know, from their point of view, this is a, a genius approach, right? It really likely costs them, uh, you know, a mere percentage, a mere slice of what it would buy, what it would cost to buy, for example, a remote uh, exploit chain against iOS. TuTalk is cheap, highly effective, and basically legal. It's malware, but it's not. Ask two people and they'll give you different answers. After the Times expose, Apple and Google banned it from their app stores. Then, not long after, Google actually let it back on. Then later, they banned it again. If you can confuse Google that badly, you know you pulled off something genius. But do you want to know why it's really genius? Like, really, really genius? Because even if you know all of this, even if you listen to this Malicious Life episode in its entirety, 2Talk still wins. 
I could imagine if I were a UAE citizen or UAE citizen, maybe would I be willing to trade my privacy for an open and robust chat app when there are none others available to me? I'm not suggesting that the citizens of that country should be content with it. But, you know, can we really blame them for taking what they can get? And if this app really does do what it say it does, then then what is this? What are we talking about? Yeah, that is an excellent question. That is why I'm so intrigued by this, because in a way it really redefines perhaps what is malware and what is not. But again, I'm not surprised that both this application became so popular and likely that it will continue to retain its popula- uh, popularity. Because again, if there's no other options for the average uh, citizen, they are going to default to this, perhaps even knowing who's uh, behind that. And you know, I think in a way that's really problematic and kind of sad. But again, I, I understand why that uh, approach might be taken. What mastermind could have come up with such a devilishly deceitful plan? So that's a really interesting question. Coming up on Malicious Life. The people behind Two Talk is told by the person who found them. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank our guests, Roy Ackerman and Patrick Wardle, and also JJ Baby from Scotland, who sent in the recording you heard in the episode. And speaking of you, our listeners, I'll take the opportunity to read to you some of the messages and tweets you sent me in the last few weeks, just because I enjoy them so much. So here's one from Larry the Sheep. Hello from Finland. I started my three-year crash course towards cybersecurity. To boost up my knowledge and enthusiasm, I started listening to podcasts. First two months for Darknet Diaries, then two months for Hackable, and last but not least, two months for Malicious Life. After these six months, I've managed to listen to all the episodes from these three awesome shows, and you guys have definitely pumped up my interest in cybersecurity. Super big thank you for the awesome show. I'm really waiting for the next episode. Thanks, Larry. Podcasts are a great way to learn new things. I started listening to podcasts in 2005, I think, and I can't even begin to count how many hours of education I've received through podcasts over the years, from cybersecurity to astronomy and neurology and a million other topics. We live in amazing times. Danielle Wentrobe from Toronto, Ontario, wrote in, quote, Hey, Ren, do you plan on making an episode on the Sammy worm sometime? I think it could be a very interesting topic to explore, end quote. Well, I've never heard of the Sammy worm before. It hit MySpace in 2005, it seems. But following Daniel's suggestion, I googled it, and what do you know? It sounds like a very interesting story. So thanks, Daniel. And of course, I'm always happy to get suggestions from you, our listeners. You can write to me on Twitter at at malicious.life or at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Or mail me at ran at ranlevy.com. And finally, something extremely cool. Following our double episodes on deep fakes, Digitipome tweeted me this. Hey, I love your show, and I made this when I was messing around with synthesized voice. I hope you like it. End quote. 
Now, what is this? It's a deep fake of my voice, and it's hilarious. Have a listen. In January, we saw the attack of a new and explicitly engineered piece of malware. Researchers are calling it Brenda 2020. This is due to a reference found within the file which states, Brand was here 2020. Nobody knows the author of this beautifully coded, advanced, persistent threat. All they know is that the coder must have been of the highest caliber of computer engineer, with knowledge surpassing most, if not all, of his peers. Infosic analysts believe this malware creator is stunningly attractive and has fantastic upper body strength. Investigation into this threat appears to be pure hysteria. They are no nearer to working out who this author is. And in my opinion, we should just leave it at that. In other news, the malicious life part test will now be distributed in PowerShell and Bash formats. Make sure to subscribe for the link. This is so cool. I played it to everybody around me who was willing to listen. So thanks, DigiDepomet. And I should mention that right after the said episodes aired, I got a message from a listener named Cameron who works at Replica Studio an Australian startup working on AI tools for creative people. Cameron created a beta account for me on Replica's platform, so there's a good chance you'll hear some interesting stuff in the near future. So a big thank you to all of you from all of us, me, Nate, Sarah, Eliad, and the rest of the team here at PI Media. We're grateful to have you along for this amazing ride. As always, our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our previous episodes and full transcripts. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh